So those of you who are just joining in, your guests, we've been for months, I think now, preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're coming now to the last chapter. So we're going to do, we're going to look at the first half this week and the last half next week, and then we'll be finished with 1 Corinthians. And the tagline we put on this series of messages is that Corinth was a messy church on a big mission, church with a lot of problems that, that had a lot of opportunities. They were in a major metropolitan area where there was lots of commerce and traffic and whatnot. So uh, I want to review with you just briefly some of the messiness of the church at Corinth. So you start off and you find out from the get-go that the Apostle Paul is speaking to the church there and saying, hey, some of you are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow uh, the Apostle Peter, and you're all divided up, and this is absolutely wrong. Uh, did any of these people die for you? Were, were, were any of these people raised for you? This is about Jesus. Then he goes on to talk about um, some sexual immorality that had gone unaddressed in the congregation uh, that would be shocking even to modern ears. He talks about probably the wealthy oppressing those with less in the court system and moves on to uh, talk about food sacrifice to idols. There were people who were going to eat in idol temples, in temples devoted to other little g-gods, and saying, hey, all the other believers, they'll catch up with us. We're enlightened and we're cool. And Paul had to say, no, you're not cool. Uh, you're engaging in idolatry. It's, it's unacceptable. And then he went on to, to speak about uh, all the aspects of worship that they had asked him about, and shockingly enough, um, at the Lord's Supper, some of the people were getting drunk while other people had nothing to eat. Um, there were all kinds of other issues related to uh, disruptions and, and lack of order in their worship. And I'm probably skipping a few of the problems, but then the, the sort of capstone was that there, were, there was a group of people in Corinth who were denying that there would be a bodily resurrection at the return of Christ. And so he had to address all those issues. So you'll concur with me, a messy church, right? I've established the point. And the question that I want to put before us today is would you or I have hung in there? Would we have stuck around? And I would say there's probably several of those things that might have sent me out the door. But Paul didn't give up on Corinth, and he doesn't give up on us. And what we want to look, about, look at today is that in this last chapter, I think Paul intimates and declares some habits, habits that the Corinthian believers had that needed to carry forward to carry them through all the turmoil of their messiness. So that's why we entitled this uh, Habits of a Messy Church. And what we want to look at at the beginning of this chapter is that, that Paul either assumed or directly said that they were going to gather for worship on the Lord's Day, they were going to continue to give, and finally they were going to be a going congregation. So there's my one alliterative outline of life. I'm not really good at that, but, but he's talking about gathering and giving and going. And so uh, in this, let's read the text. It's on page 12 in your worship guide, and it'll be up on the screen. 1 Corinthians 
chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. I feel like I should pause for those of you who are new. Saints are just holy ones. This is not especially, this is the, the people in Corinth and the people in Judea. It's believers. Um, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Let's talk first about gathering. Uh, clearly, what's on the surface of this text is Paul is collecting funds or monies for believers in Judea and Jerusalem who are undergoing a famine. And you see this really evidence throughout the New Testament. And he says that they're going to take the gift to Jerusalem. But what he tells them to do and what he's told the Galatian churches to do, he says, on the first day of every week, you set aside some money. And the commentators are going to disagree about this. This does not say directly, hey, believers, uh, bring your gift to the gathered worship of God's people on Sunday. It doesn't say that. But I believe strongly that it's implied in this text. And I just want to give you some reasons for this. Uh, on, number one is, why does he say on the first day of the week? Why, why does he refer to it that way? And then you're going to see in a few minutes that in the New Testament, this on the first day of the week refers to what we call the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, and it distinguishes it from the Jewish Sabbath, which is the, the seventh day of the week. And so he's saying this, and then he goes on to say, and this is really my clinching argument on this, is that when I come, no further collecting will have to be done. And my assertion is that if you are just setting aside on the Lord's Day stuff in your house every week, you would still have to call for the collection to be gathered up when Paul arrived. But he's basically, I think, saying there's going to be a big bag of cash there. When I get there, it'll all be collected by perhaps the leaders of the church. And so, again, this is, I think, implied. It's not stated. If you, if you want to disagree with me, we can have long conversations about it. A lot of commentators don't hold to that. But what I want to focus on is this phrase, on the first day of the week. And what you look, what you see in the New Testament, and I believe this is compelling, is that the apostles begin to refer to, to the day of rest and worship for believers to not be the Jewish Sabbath, but to, to be the first day of the week. And this is how they talk about it. So, for example, in the book of Acts, Luke is recording what has happened as, as Jesus, through the apostles, spreads the gospel 
in the Mediterranean basin. And Paul is coming back from a journey and he stops in a city called Troas. And in Troas, the believers all gather together when? Luke says, on the first day of the week. And what do they do when they gather together? Paul preaches all night long, by the way. And somebody around midnight fell out of the window and landed on the ground from the third floor and died. And and Paul had to go raise them up. What else did they do? Well, after they picked, after he gave life back to this guy, Christ gave life to this guy, they went in and they broke bread. That's preaching and the Lord's Supper, isn't it? And when did it happen? On the first day of the week. And what do we assume all these several chapters in, in Corinthians that talked about how to worship, about head coverings, about the Lord's Supper, about who gets to speak and who gets to judge prophecies and, and singing of hymns. Isn't this what we do here? And isn't this where we get it? It's from the Bible. And now he's, I believe, in this text referring to that as on the first day of the week. Now, if you let the Apostle John speak into this as well within the New Testament period, in the book of Revelation near the end of the century, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Kind of unique in the Bible, right? What does John mean by that? Well, I believe the evidence looking at his gospel is compelling. He's talking about this day of gathered worship. And so when you look in John chapter 20, when the Apostle John is talking about the resurrection of Christ, what does he say at the beginning of the chapter? Mary Magdalene went to the tomb on the first day of the week. Now, I want to ask you again, why didn't John say the third day after Jesus was crucified? Because that would be more consistent with everything that Jesus taught, right? He said, I'm going to die, be buried, and rise on the third day. But now, after, as the, as the church progresses in the, in the first century, he refers to that as the first day of the week. And he's not done yet. So Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's the first Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's Easter, if you want to say that, the very first one. And he comes, and the, the disciples are inside a locked room, and he comes inside and stands and meets with them. And what does John describe that as? He says, on the evening of the first day of the week. And Jesus says to them, peace be with you. He's raised from the dead. And so, again, I think all this uh, is indirect evidence is intimating that in this text, you have the people of God gathering, not on the Jewish Sabbath, but on the first day of the week to commemorate the resurrection. And it's the institution in the New Testament period of a day of rest and worship for followers of Jesus Christ to gather together and celebrate his resurrection life and to worship the triune God in all these sorts of ways that, that we've described here. Now, I went to a lot of trouble to try to demonstrate this to you because I don't think a lot of people have thought about this. And I want you to be able to say, um, if you're here today, no offense to you, if you've come to be a guest with us and you're a Seventh-day Adventist, I love you. But there's a group of people out there who are Seventh-day Adventists who are adamant about the fact that you should rest and worship on the Jewish Sabbath or on the seventh day. And you, as a believer, need to say, well, this evidence, while indirect, is sufficient enough and compelling for me to look both at the Bible and church history and to say, 
my day of rest and worship is on the first day of the week. So there, there you have the whole thing. And so what shall we do with that? What we want to do is come and say, let's gather together. Now you're here on the Lord's Day. But the Lord's Day is a continuation in the New Covenant of God's command to have a day for rest and worship. And it's a day for believers of joy. So just to ask you today, (laughs) and I realize it's not fair after the fact. First of all, you're all here on the Lord's Day worshiping, so praise the Lord. I'm not browbeating you. But, But just to ask you, if you woke up this morning and said, wow, Jesus is alive from the dead. I'm no longer in my sins. I trust him. And not only am I no longer in my sins, he has inaugurated a whole new creation. If anyone is in Christ, behold, a new creation. And when he returns, we'll see the full flowering of what he has begun in believers now by giving them new hearts and new lives. And all these people sitting in the room around me, the annoying ones, all them, the the people who have problems, us as a church, like, like Corinth, we come and we gather and we say, praise you, living God, that you have sent Christ to bear the sins of his people, to be buried in death, to take the curse of death, and to be raised to life on the third day. And so we come on this first day of the week and celebrate. And I would just say about our worship, Andrew and I have talked about this all the time. Uh, we're pretty, we're, I think, Lord help me, I don't, you know, I don't want to boast, but we're better than a lot of evangelical peppy congregations where you have to be happy all the time about lamenting and confessing our sins. But I don't know that we're so good about joy and shouting. And I want to thank you for saying amen and having some energy that says, yes, Christ has been raised from the dead. And we're gathered here together in, in both lament and joy. There's, there's, there's both aspects. And so we hold this up today and, and just go back now to the beginning and say, this was a messy church. There, there are a lot of things here that would send a lot of us straight out the door. But Paul didn't give up on them. And the way they're going to persevere and make it through is partly by gathering for worship as you're doing this morning. And I want to submit to you, Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. And one of the primary vehicles of endurance to the end is this gathered worship. So those of you who are here today, keep it up. Gather, pray. Pray for what happens here. That God would be about the business of saving his people. That he would be about the business of meeting with believers in ways that that you would never expect through a line of a hymn, through a confession, through reading of scripture, that Jesus is present with us to meet with his people. So I could go on about this, but there's a grave neglect of the Lord's Day within evangelicalism in America. And so I hope this goes out online and everybody sort of gathers t- together. That, that this is something that is for your good and for your joy because Christ has been raised from the dead. So the people in Corinth, I believe that there's enough implied here for us to, to deduce in the context of the New Testament that he expected them to be gathering and giving in that context so no collection would have to be made.
We move on now to the giving part. Well, I don't think I have to demonstrate from the text. The whole text is about giving. Part of it is that he's giving them explicit instructions about giving for mercy to the the church in Judea and Jerusalem. Now, we know from other texts that say uh, a believer has to share all good, the, the one taught has to share all good things with the one who teaches. We know in the pastoral epistles, he says, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. We're giving on a regular basis to support the ministry of a local church. But this is what we might call maybe a special offering. And just so you know, we have a deacon's fund that you can find if you try hard. I think we're going to put some stuff in the worship guide about it that specifically is for mercy in our community and in our congregation that goes not for the maintenance of of the congregation, but for, for deeds of mercy. And that's the kind of thing they're after here. But it's not just, it's not just giving money. Paul's expecting their giving to go into generosity for the propagation of the gospel. He says, I want to come and I'm going to spend time with you. And I don't know where the Lord's going to take me, but I'm going to let you send me on my way. And it's very clear if you read uh, the New Testament that the, the church has supported these itinerant evangelists and apostles as they went from place to place with hospitality and with, with supplies that they needed for their ministry. And then finally, he says, when Timothy comes, you make sure you welcome him and again, send him on his way in peace so that he can return to me. So all this, this whole text has in it the substrate of generosity and of giving. And and it's just very important for us to call attention to that. And what does that look like? Well, I wanted to share with you that during uh, the, the COVID period, um, the government was giving away money. Uh, I got three episodes of money that I really didn't exactly need. And somebody in our, in our church um, got some of this money. And they said, Lord, look at this. I have plenty. I have all I need. Uh, let me give this away. And so they pursued a person who's doing ministry and said, how can I love you and how can I support you and be generous to you with what I've received? And what transpired in that is that the, the, the giver gave the re- recipient uh, a really a gift of largesse. What's the word I'm looking for? A, a generous gift of something that would really help them go forward in ministry. And that really captures sort of uh, the idea of generosity, to, to, be, to have the gospel make me generous. And Paul's very clear. You have to read, <laughs> this is kind of funny, he says this about giving and the offering. And apparently, uh, again, this is a messy church that's slow because we have two chapters in 2 Corinthians a year later that pretty much addresses the same stuff. And there, Paul really elaborates on this. And he says, wow, where does generosity come from? Where does generosity come from? Generosity comes from being drenched in the gospel. And he says, you know that Jesus was rich. What does he mean by that? Well, for those of you who are new to this, before Jesus was born of a virgin, he existed from all eternity, co-equal with the Father. There's nothing that was ever created that wasn't created by him. He's the creator and ruler of all things, reigning with the Father, 
distinct from the Father and the Son, but co-equal with the Holy Spirit. And so he, Philippians says he emptied himself. He emptied himself and took on flesh. The Son of God become man. And Jesus goes around, and in, in his ministry he says, Hey, foxes have holes, but birds of the air have uh, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And that emptying of himself culminates in the obedience of going to a cross, there bearing the curse of death for the sins of his people. And then he was exalted and raised to life and seated bodily as the, as the Son of God forever at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus was rich and he became poor so that in him you might become rich. We're not talking about prosperity gospel or anything like that. What is it the riches of? It's the riches of being a son or a daughter of God and having all the promises of God given to you so that Paul could say about the Corinthians, hey, all things are yours. Is that you today? Is that how you view yourself? All the riches of God are at my disposal. I'm, I'm a son or daughter. I don't lack anything. The Lord's my shepherd. I, I, don't, I don't want for anything. And if I need anything, I can ask him. And in his fatherly care, if I really need it, he'll give it to me. Because he's a good father. He is. Amen. Amen. And so you can be generous. And it can flow out of this gospel awareness. Now, what does that look like? Well, I would just say, um, I, I, I want you to rejoice and not feel guilty. And you could say, and I've probably given you six or seven things over the last weeks to cultivate habits of, and I've forgotten them all, and I don't chide you if you forget them today either. But if you want to grow in Christ, it involves cultivating habits that stick with you. So think about cultivating the habit of generosity. I know some people uh, who have the gift of mercy who I just can't believe their lives. They go out shopping for something. If I go out for shopping for something, I've got a list of four things. I'm in there. I'm out of there. I'm through the shortest line. I came for those four things. And I'm looking around saying, where are those four things? And I leave. But some people go shopping and they come back not only with their four things, but like five or six things for other people. And I'm saying, how could you be thinking about Christmas and other people and so-and-so needs this and you order something and you get like three of those and give them away? I'm just astonished by that. So if that's you, praise the Lord. You have a gift of generosity, a gift of giving, a gift of mercy. Keep at it. For those of you who are a little more... Uh, on time <laughs> and scheduled, uh, we could just begin with small things. And you, uh, you, know, you, can, you can make fun, but some of us are pretty high strung. Um, you could just start by, if you're going to go get a cup of coffee at the office, you could say to the people around you, would you like a cup of coffee? I'll bring one back for you. I'm ordering stuff from Amazon. Do you need anything? 
Just, just if you put it on a card and say, and now I'm really talking to my, I think you all know this is, I'm talking to myself here. If, if, if I were to put it on a card and read it every morning, Lord, grow in me the grace of generosity, I believe that the Holy Spirit would change me. And I believe that He can change you too. So they were gathering and they were giving and the Lord can make us generous in all kinds of way, ways. And just, just remember, you can't outgive God. He says, if you, it, it, there's nobody that's too poor or has too little to be generous. You give of what you have. You don't give what you don't have. And then God is rich in grace, will supply everything that you need so that you can grow in giving. So the last thing that we want to talk about then, there's gathering, there's giving, and then there's the going part. And uh, I just think it's, it's, again, woven throughout this text First of all, Corinth is going to have to appoint some people to go back to Jerusalem to take this gift to the believers in Jerusalem. And we're not talking about like going from here to Greenville on I-26. We're talking about going uh, across whatever sea that is into Turkey and then all the way through Turkey and then down through Lebanon or that's overland or by ship through the Mediterranean Sea. It's a pretty big journey. So they're going to, they're going to go. And then Paul, the one who said, follow me as I follow Christ, he's going. He's going. And then Timothy, he's already gone, and he's supposed to come back. Everybody here is going. And what, what's, what's determining, what's guiding their going and staying? What's the progress of the gospel? So is this not challenging to you and to me, those of you who believe? Is, is my life, are my goings and comings organized around the progress of the gospel or around something else? Because look at what Paul says. I just think this is very, very striking. He says in verse 8, I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened to me. And what comes with it? Many adversaries. Corinth has all kinds of problems. The churches need all kinds of things. He can be pulled in a whole bunch of different directions, but he's going to stay put in Ephesus. And I don't know if the riot has happened or not in Ephesus. I mean, he's going to stay in Ephesus and, and preach the gospel because he sees the gospel going forward. It's the same thing that happened in Corinth. The Lord appeared to him and said, I've got a bunch of people in this city. Don't move on. Stay here and preach. And he stayed there for a year and a half. His going and his coming was guided by the progress of the gospel. Now, this can bring you, I think, into some thorny, thorny places or deep waters or whatnot. Uh, one of the last times that I was in Africa, those of you who don't know Shelly and I, we lived among a small tribal group, about 50 or 80,000 people, way out in the middle of nowhere, really literally nowhere. Um, and uh, it's a very place that's very resistant to the gospel. Uh, various uh, ministers of the word, missionaries, cross-cultural workers have been there uh, for decades and decades. And there are really no churches that have been established that are, that are practicing the sacraments, preaching the word. Uh, they don't have a full scripture. They, they almost got one and it's all corrupted and, and messed up. They, it's a really super needy place that people have been 
preaching the gospel in for, for decades now. So we, when I was there, I went with my friend to Kampala, Uganda, to the headquarters of a major mission agency. And he and I sat down and said to this, the leader, who had spent a lot of time on the field, I have a lot of respect for him, uh, what, are, what are you going to do about the low peat people? Are you going to stick in there or not? And the fellow said, you know, um, that's a really hard place. Uh, we used to build houses for everybody that was going to a people like that, assuming that they would be there for a long time. But we've changed our policy. We're not building long-term housing anymore. We're not doing that. And what we're doing is we're sending people to unreached people groups all over Africa to see who's going to respond to the gospel. And then we're going to invest in that area. Now, to me, that was a little shocking and a little hurtful because I know um, the names and faces of people who are there. But on the other hand, I have to say that what he was saying is not entirely inconsistent with this text. So what should we do with this going and going under, under the, the motivation of the progress of the gospel? Listen, I'm not making any statements about missiology or what mission agencies should do. Everybody has to make their own way in life, and, and that's not it. But how do you and I apply this personally, and how do we apply it as a church? I think the main thing is this, am I going with the gospel? And am I looking for open doors? You know, if you want to be like Jesus, he said, my father's always at work and I work with him. So what I'm saying here is, will you just go across the driveway to your neighbor and engage in conversation that includes the name of Jesus? You know, I, I get frustrated to death about the Bible Belt, about everybody talking about God and the Lord, and we kind of smooth it all over that anybody can be religious. We're talking about the trying God who sent his son to die for sinners and rise again. So I'm just saying, go places and talk about Jesus. Just go and be listening. You see, that's the whole thing. You're not notching your belt. Oh, I went to my neighbor and talked about Jesus. You want to listen. Tell me what you think about Jesus and listen. Would you like to talk more about knowing Jesus? Oh, there's an open door. Let me invest my time and energy there. And if you go to a neighbor and, and they say, I hate the thought of the whole thing, you can go, okay, there, that's a ministry of prayer for me. I'm going to wait for the Lord on that one. But my time and resources are going to go over here where there seems to be an openness to the gospel. And that's what's sort of guiding your going and coming. Now, as I say this again, um, I don't, I, it just amazes me over and over again. Um, don't you dare leave today and say, you know, Chuck was pounding us about sharing our faith. Don't do that. What you can do is start by enjoying Christ. Right? You can walk up, you can wake up in the morning and go, look at this free grace. I don't know, I keep wanting to say largesse. Look at this bounty. Look at this abundance of love that God has for me. That Christ would die for me, that he would be raised for me. Let me worship here. And you see, you're going you're gonna to praise and talk about things that are important to you.
We're going to talk about college football. We're going to talk about your investment accounts. We're going to talk about how you bought a house and it's falling down and needs a lot of work. You know, all these things. Are you going to talk about the love of God in Christ? And it just really comes down to what's predominating your thinking, your mind, and your heart. From the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. So the first place to start is in cherishing Christ. Now, when you're over there talking to your neighbor, you do get to that crisis point, and you have to give yourself a little kick and go, I'm going to talk to this person about Jesus, and then just do it. (laughs) Or ask them a question. It's even better to ask them a question. Who do you think Jesus is? So these are the things that are going to carry Corinth through a whole litany of messy sins. Gathering, like we're doing here. Giving in generosity. And a perspective on going with the gospel to our neighbors. So may the Lord work these things in our lives. We have one more Sunday left to go through 1 Corinthians, but we would do well just to hang on to the ones that we had today, at least for a week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can look at this text for inspiring uh, Paul to write this uh, by the Holy Spirit and for giving it to us. Lord, will you send us out today rejoicing in who Christ is and what he's done? And may it fuel in us this gathering, giving, and going. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.